Please turn to Luke. Uh, your Bible may open there now, as we've been studying there for a little while. But let's talk for a moment and recap what we talked about last week. Now, last week, man, I, I'm tempted to go back and say, let's just talk about that again, because I want us to get it so thoroughly, but I won't do that. But what we talked about last week was the gospel according to Jesus. And I said, it sounds a little bit different than the American gospel. Uh, the American gospel says, hey, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your materialism. You can have your pride. You can have your autonomy. And just add a little Jesus in there and he'll bless the whole thing. And you'll have even more uh, to indulge in your materialism and your pride and your autonomy, right? Well, that's not really what Jesus said. And so we looked last week at this wonderful verse where Jesus said, what you need to do if you're going to follow me is deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And that is a little different than the gospel that some of us heard. And honestly, it's different from the gospel some of us signed up for. And so I wanted to tell you the truth about what Jesus said. You know, there are other places where Jesus says, um, did you start that? Okay. There are other places where Jesus says, uh, you know, you got to count the cost of discipleship. And if you don't understand the real gospel, you go, what cost? <laughs> there is no cost. So I don't understand what you're saying there, Jesus. So we looked at that last week, and I really hope that that'll stick with you. Because that is so vitally important that we understand and preach the real gospel. Uh, the almost gospel, the fake gospel, does not save anybody. So we have to understand that to follow Christ, yes, grace is a free gift, but it is a free gift that costs the one who receives it everything else. There used to be an old commercial for Burger King. I think it was before my time, but I have heard about it. And it says, you have to have two hands to handle a Whopper, or it takes two hands to handle a Whopper. In other words, you can't be holding anything else. Well, it takes both hands to grasp the gospel. You have to release those other things that weigh you down. Now, today's big idea is that Jesus is coming back someday. Now, one way or the other, you'll have to stand before God. And you'll stand before him either as a sinner and a rebel, guilty of cosmic treason against your creator, or when that great flood of God's judgment comes, you will be safe in the, in the ark of Jesus Christ. You'll be loved, adopted, and credited with his righteousness. This time that Jesus comes will be very, very different than the first time. You know, the first time Jesus was meek and mild and gentle and lowly in heart. He willingly laid aside his glory and submitted himself even to the shame of the cross. Now, everybody loves little baby Jesus. We're, in, we're getting into December, and folks are putting up their Christmas decorations, and everybody loves little baby Jesus. You know why? Because baby Jesus doesn't really demand anything of you. He's harmless and cute. Everybody loves a baby. Now, you remember that in a few years, uh, it went from this adorable, harmless-looking little baby to a guy who the whole world was plotting to kill the Jewish leaders were plotting to have him murdered, and the Romans actually carried out that murder. And so 
while people love little baby Jesus, they don't quite love the one that demands everything from them. The one that says, hey, I am holy, righteous, and I will judge men based on either their, their conduct, their sin, their rebellion, or I will cover them with my blood and judge them to be righteous. Now, the second time he comes, he will be revealed in all his glory and his majesty to judge and to set things right. You know, that, um, that is a great comfort to Christians. There are a lot of things that aren't right that need to be set right. And they will one day be set right. Uh, the Lord doesn't say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, because he's not going to carry out vengeance. He says it because you and I can't manage it. We can't do it right, but he can. You know, I've told you, Hitler died in the comfort of his lover's arms and never answered for his crimes. Is that fair? No, it's, it's horribly unfair. But one day, God, through Jesus Christ, will set things right. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for Jesus' first coming. What a glorious time that was. And we should celebrate, Lord. And we should uh, celebrate that wonderful, amazing thing. Because, Lord, as we said, he did lay aside his glory that which is innately and rightly His in order to put on flesh and dwell among us. It's amazing. And Lord, if we can get our head around the condescension that that took from going from that continual glory to being born in a manger uh, as a helpless little baby, that's mind-blowing. But Father, I pray that we'll also see that the second time your son comes, it will be a very different story. He will come revealed in his majesty rather than cloaking that majesty. And Lord, we're going to get a little foretaste of it in our scripture today. So Father, I pray that we would see both sides. Lord, Jesus is, is, is humble and meek and lowly in heart. That was his own description of himself. So Lord, help us see that in light of his glory and his majesty. Because, Father, that makes the humility so much more astonishing. Lord, the way he will come back the second time gives us hope and gives us something to look forward to. But it also shines light on the humility of his first coming. So, Lord, help us understand these things in a way that at the end of the day we understand who Jesus is better. That's my prayer. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first verse that we're going to look at is actually a little bit challenging to understand. Uh, so let's get a running start at it. In verse um, 23 of Luke 9, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I hope you will underline, circle, highlight that verse in your Bible because it is one that we desperately need to understand. Then he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Now listen to this part. He's going to come back in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, in that context of Christ's return, let's read verse 27. 
But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to see the kingdom of God? That's the question here. Because we don't really understand what Jesus is talking about. And I'm going to give you some theories and uh, take them and see which one sounds best to you. The first one is that he's saying, he's not saying, hey, some of you are going to still be alive eight days from now, if you can believe that. (laughs) I mean, I could probably make this prophecy, right? I could say, I bet next week some of you will be alive. You'd be like, I'm not impressed, right? So the stress here is that some of you, a few of you guys, a few of you who are standing here will see the kingdom before you die. Now, he may be talking about this event that we will study in a few minutes that happened only six or eight days later. Um, if he's talking about that, then the stress needs to be on some of you. And we'll see it was three of them standing there. So that's one theory that maybe he is talking about the transfiguration that we're going to see. But maybe he's stressing the fact that, hey, a few of you guys are going to see this. Now, prophets in the Old Testament would sometimes prophesy about things far distant in the future. Uh, our study of Daniel taught us that, right? Daniel taught us about stuff, he prophesied about stuff that hasn't even occurred 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, right? He was talking about stuff way future to him. But to make sure that we believed him, he also prophesied about near-term stuff. So he would tell these kings that would come to him, hey, what was my dream? And he'd tell them, right? And he'd say, here's what your dream is, here's what your dream means. And we saw that he was right. He was truly a prophet of God. And so based on those things, that those near-term prophecies, we can see, oh, he does know what he's talking about. He is truly a prophet of God. Therefore, when he talks about the final things, we can say he knows what he's talking about there too. And so Jesus may have been saying, look, I'm going to give you a short-term prophecy and I'm going to show you the kingdom now so that you will believe and understand that what I say about the long away future is true also. Now the kingdom of God that they saw may have been the resurrection. I mean they may have seen the resurrection. Some of them saw the resurrection and they may have seen okay There is absolutely life after death. There is absolutely a resurrection of a physical body. This is what the kingdom is going to be like. So he may have been talking about the resurrection. He may have been talking about Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, the Spirit of God came to dwell in men. Now, the Spirit of God had come upon men in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, this was a radically different thing. God's Spirit was going to come and indwell the believers. And maybe that's what the kingdom of God looks like. You know, at Pentecost, we read this account in Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that was this Jewish celebration called Pentecost. And this is what God did at Pentecost to indwell the believers with the Holy Spirit. But you know what? It wasn't just a Jewish phenomenon. The Samaritans were this intermarried kind of half-breed Jew 
thing that the Jews hated. Jews hated them. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They did not like each other. But God did the same thing, showed the evidence of the kingdom actually coming to earth when the Samaritans had their own version of Pentecost. In Acts 8, verses 14 through 17, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the reason that they didn't immediately get the Spirit was God wanted to show this object lesson to the Jews. He wanted to show them that as the Jews went down there, that these Samaritans were receiving the same Holy Spirit. And so they said, hey, these guys are just like we are. We can't, you know, we can't discriminate against them. And then the Gentiles, who were certainly the most, um, you know, abhorred people by the Jews, they couldn't even eat with the Gentiles, right? Or they'd be ceremonially unclean. And so this Gentile Pentecost happened as well. And Pentecost is actually a holiday, but I'm saying this appearance of the Spirit coming on them. In uh, Acts 10, a couple of chapters later, in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. That means the Jews that came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So, these are all manifestations of the kingdom coming that Jesus might have been talking about. And then in A.D. 70, the uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. You all know the story about during the crucifixion, the, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And that, a lot of commentators say, is a beautiful picture of there being now no, no, no hesitation, no barrier between the worshipers and God. Another possible interpretation, actually, that I favor, and you all are going to be like, man, you're doom and gloom. But what I think that really represented was, I think the presence of God was leaving the Holy of Holies. I think he rent that thing in two and demonstrably left the temple. And we can see continuation of that judgment occur in AD 70 when, when uh, Jerusalem was just laid waste And so we can say, well, that is the coming of the kingdom. That's the coming of the judgment on those who rejected the Messiah. Now, I understand that's a little bit of a downer, but that may have been what Jesus was talking about. So which one is it? I I don't know. I really don't know. But Luke was a meticulous writer. He was a careful writer. And the fact that this mention comes right before uh, Christ's transfiguration makes me think he may have indeed been saying a few of you guys are going to see the kingdom. So I'm going to go back to that first one and say maybe it's that one. But these all seem reasonable and all of them are manifestations of the kingdom. So you remember Jesus' sermon back in chapter 4 in in Luke 4 17 through 20 he got up to read the scroll from Isaiah and he unrolled it and found where it was written the spirit of the Lord is upon me Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus was there standing in front of them, speaking to them. 
And he said, hey, y'all know all this stuff that's going to happen when the kingdom comes? Here it is. And so they were talking with the king of the kingdom. So anytime Jesus says, hey, you're going to see the kingdom. Well, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what he's talking about because the king is right there. Right. So they were in the presence of the king of the kingdom. But if we go back to that theory one that he was talking about, uh, a few of them were going to see the transfiguration. Then let's talk about that. Uh, whether or not that's what he's referring to, it doesn't matter. We need to see this foretaste of the Jesus that is going to return for us. So back in Luke 9, starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these things. Now the other, uh, Mark and Matthew say six days. And he says about eight days. And so if you're talking about, I'm making the prophecy today and I'm going to count that day. And then on the day which it occurs, I'm going to count that day. That's eight days. If you say those days between the prophecy and the event are six days, right? So they were just talking about different ways to count it. And Luke had already very likely read Mark. And so he was saying, well, it was about eight days. So these things he took with him, Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. That makes me feel a little better because sometimes when I'm preaching, I look out there and y'all are, you know, out of it. But Peter was sleeping here at the transfiguration. So I guess it, it happens, right? And as the men were parting from him, in verse 33, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I love that Luke added that. He's like, man, Peter was talking out of his head, but he, he didn't know what he was talking about. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, this is my son my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We need to understand the glorified Jesus as best we can in order to better appreciate the fact that he was gentle and lowly. You know, again, that's how Jesus described himself. It's not that somebody observed him and said he was gentle and lowly. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's one thing to be gentle and lowly if you are powerless. It is entirely a different thing to be gentle and lowly when you are God. So let's see here that the Old Testament saints testified about Jesus. In verse 30 and 31, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were there talking to him, and they were talking to him about the crucifixion that was coming up, about the resurrection that was coming up, and about his ascension back to the Father that was coming up. Now these two guys... Are, are different in a lot of ways. Dead saints don't have bodies. 
until the resurrection. But these two guys either got them for a day or got them early. I don't know. Uh, but these guys uh, had, had extraordinary circumstances around their deaths as well. Elijah got to skip the dying part and go to heaven. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Because, you know, we've, we've talked about how uh, Dr. Sproul once said, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. And I think that's the case for any genuine believer. We're not afraid of death, but we're sure afraid of dying because that's scary and weird and we've never done it. We don't want to do it. Well, Elijah didn't have to. Moses died, but he was buried by God himself. Nobody knew where he was buried because God buried him. That's certainly unusual circumstances. Moses and Elijah were actually there, but they're also great representatives of the Old Testament. The Jews refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets, and that's certainly embodied in these two guys. Moses was the lawgiver. And Elijah was the protector of the law. He was fighting against idolatry. So these are Old Testament saints, and they represent the Old Testament witness as well. So what did Moses say about Jesus in the Old Testament? In Deuteronomy eight fifteen through 19, Moses prophesied of Jesus. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. Now, it sounds bad. It sounds like we're like, we don't want anything to do with God. But actually, they were showing a great reverence and respect. And the Lord said to me, this is the Lord saying to Moses, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God says through Moses, hey, I'm going to send a prophet kind of like you. And they better listen to him. Moses prophesied about Jesus. But in this scene, Moses just doesn't know about Jesus. He is there fellowshipping with him speaking to him face to face. Now Moses had a remarkably intimate relationship with God, but it's even more intimate now. He can just stand face to face with a physical body there and speak to him. The New Testament saints also testified about Jesus. In verse 36, it says, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, why didn't they tell anybody? Well, Luke doesn't tell us, but we find out from Matthew and Mark that they didn't tell anybody because Jesus told them not to until after the resurrection. Mark 9, Mark 9, 9 and 10 says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they were still confused, right? They still weren't sure about all the plan. You know, because of last week we talked about how they thought, okay, Jesus is going to come. He's going to take over. He's going to throw Rome out. We're ascending, man. We are on the way up. And Jesus said, hey, so I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And all of a sudden they're like, what? That is not the plan. And that's, when, that's what inspired Peter to go say, Lord, that's, no, that's a bad idea. And Jesus, of course, rebuked him. Now, of course, these guys did tell people after the resurrection, or we wouldn't have an account of it, right? 
James was martyred early on and didn't leave any biblical writings. Now, understand that this is James, the brother of John, the, the son of Zebedee. So he's not the James that wrote James because that James is the half-brother of Christ. So this James that was on the mountain of transfiguration, he didn't actually leave us any biblical writing. Because, again, he was, he was martyred pretty early. Um, Peter wrote about it, though. In 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18, Peter recalls this event. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And John writes about it. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you skip down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Old Testament saints testified about Jesus. The New Testament saints testified about Jesus. But then we get to the most important testimony of all, and that is that of God the Father who testified of Jesus. In verses 34 and 35, And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. For people who deny the Trinity, I guess they think Jesus was doing some special effects here. I don't know. But we see here clearly, as we saw at Jesus' baptism, the, uh, the Father addressing the Son in the presence of other people. Now you got to love Peter, right? First of all, he's sleeping. Jesus says, hey, come away with me and pray, and they go to sleep. <laughs> uh, then he wakes up, and right when he wakes up, he starts to advise Jesus and Moses and Elijah on what ought to happen. So uh, in verse 32, we read, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds that wonderful tag, not knowing what he said. So God the Father sort of interrupts Peter and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Peter needed to just listen instead of talk. Now, we need to be careful to whom we listen. Um, we absolutely should listen to God, but not everybody talking about God is talking about the real one. I've talked to two young people uh, over the past couple of weeks. One of them said that he had been saved, and so I, I was talking to him, and I said, hey, so how'd that come about? And he said, well, I was watching uh, TikTok. <laughs> if you know what TikTok is, it is um, mostly a thing where young girls, not wearing a whole lot of clothes, dance for a few seconds to some little part of some song. And that's what I thought TikTok was. Well, apparently it has some redeemable uses as well, because this guy had apparently heard the gospel on TikTok. I wish I were cool enough to use that venue. We're going to have to figure out how to do that, I guess. But anyway... He had heard the gospel there. Now, 
what all had he heard? Now, he needs to hear more. He, he needs to be discipled. But I praise God that he heard the gospel on TikTok. But who is on there? I mean, anybody that has a camera and a phone, right? That's the same thing with YouTube. I talked to another guy who said he uh, spent a lot of time thinking about faith and thinking about religion. And he watched guys on YouTube talk about it. And I really strongly urged him to put down the YouTube and pick up the Bible, right? Because we need to hear from God. But like I said, anybody with an internet connection can be teaching on YouTube. That does not mean it's worth listening to. Now, there's some great, amazing teachers on YouTube. But you have to have the discernment, right, to figure out who to listen to. And a young Christian or a young person who is considering the faith does not yet have that discernment. So how do we listen to God? Well, we read his word. And he said, well, I do better with oral, like A-U-R, oral learning. I do too. Uh, But you know what? I, I get the word of God to speak to me from my phone. So I still study the word, and you can study it however it gets into you best. If your eyes don't work real good, there are apps on your phone that you can have read to you. But take in the word of God. It's great to listen to Bible teachers, but you have to listen to ones that have proven their integrity. We get a glimpse here of how Jesus will appear when he returns. Now, last week and again this morning, we read Jesus saying in, in Luke nine twenty six, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. So Jesus says, I'm coming back. One verse out of every 25 or so in the New Testament talks about Jesus' return. It is a big deal. It is something that we need to be looking forward to. So when he returns in his glory, he'll look like this description in verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Now that word altered is is the Greek word from which we get our our word um, metamorphosis. And so he is going to, you know, we look at a caterpillar and we look at a butterfly and we go, man, these, these two things don't look the same. It has undergone a metamorphosis. And so this change in Jesus' appearance was dramatic. The, the Bible is famous for its low-key kind of wording, right? So it says his face was altered. It was altered big time. And his clothing became dazzling white. And dazzling white, again, is not a, not a good enough description because it is talking about the radiance that lightning has. And so he's not just wearing a really white cloak that's super white and has been really cleaned and processed until it's very, very white. It is like lightning. Now, Jesus didn't get some new glory. Some of his inherent glory was allowed to show through for a moment. So it's not like Jesus put on the show and he was tired afterward. This glory is innately his. He just removed the veil a little bit and let these guys see who and what he really is. And the one God the Father had appointed to judge the world is this magnificent Christ. So he described himself as gentle and lowly and yet has all this majesty and has all this authority to come and judge men. That gives us a wonderful hope, doesn't it? I mean, if he were just perfectly righteous and holy, boy, that'd be scary. If he were just 
gentle and meek and humble, well, that wouldn't get justice served, right? Because like I said, you know, Hitler wouldn't have to face the consequences. People that get away from, uh, from earthly justice wouldn't have to pay for it unless there was a righteous judge who would someday make sure that those things that were wrong became right. And so this is the same guy. I'm not saying he has multiple personalities, but he is perfectly just and holy and powerful and has all authority, and yet he is meek and gentle and lowly in heart. Those are two. One, that's, a, that's a wonderful combination for us because it shows us that there are going to be two different people in the judgment, two different kinds of people. They're going to be the forgiven people who are declared righteous, adopted as sons and daughters of God. Not just forgiven, but adopted into the family, beloved. And then there are going to be those who are condemned, rejected, destined to eternal suffering because of the holiness of God. Now combine this knowledge with Jesus' requirements for discipleship that we talked about last week. Do you see how your greatest need, your greatest need is to find refuge from God's judgment in Christ. But it's also your neighbor's greatest need, which I harp on all the time, and you know, we got to tell them because there is judgment coming, and it's going to be it's going to be devastating to those outside of Christ. Jesus gave a prophecy of a future event that was quite distant from the time he gave it. This was his second coming. It would not take place for at least another 2000 years. Now, prophecies that take so long to come true can cause folks to doubt, can't they? They say, well, it hadn't happened yet, so maybe it never will. Let me remind you of some things that I hope will give you confidence about the second coming of Jesus. The first is that the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, and most importantly, God the Father gave validity to what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, hey, I'm about to come back. And then we see the Old Testament prophets saying, yeah, he's, he's the one. The New Testament disciples and apostles are saying, yeah, Jesus is the one. And God the Father himself says, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus' resurrection should give you confidence, right? Now this is another validation of the Father. Had Jesus died and remained in that tomb, then we'd say, man, he was crazy. He was a nut. He thought he was the Son of God. But since he was raised from the dead, we go, okay. Everything he said was true, and so as the Father instructed, I am going to listen to him. Now remember this too. Jesus' first appearance took a long time to occur. Back in Genesis 3.15, we read the promise of the coming Messiah. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is God talking to the serpent, of course. Now, I don't know how much time passed between this promise in the Garden of Eden and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but it was thousands of years. It was a long time, a lot longer than we've waited for his second coming. We don't know when Jesus will return, but we do know what he said about how we're supposed to wait in the meantime. In Matthew 24, starting in 42, he says, Therefore, stay awake. I can't help thinking anybody been thinking of Peter here. It says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So these folks that Jesus says will be cut in pieces and put with the hypocrites in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, these are lost people. Don't be one of those. Now, if you were listening last week, you know that there is a cost to following Jesus. The cost is everything. You become his slave. Now, that may not sound good, but let me assure you that it is. Because you'll either be a slave of Christ or a slave to sin, one of the two. Jesus is a wonderful master who makes you a son or a daughter and a co-heir with him. He's the most wonderful master you can imagine. All right, so Jesus is coming back. That means for those who are in Christ, for those who are not in Christ, actually, let's start there. When he returns, there's going to be dread and shame. There's going to be eternal punishment for the rebellion. Their guilt will be exposed before this holy and righteous God. So if you're lost, if you're outside of Christ, let me tell you, life is short. And all the joy you will ever have, you'll have right now. But for the believer who is in Christ, the return of Christ gives us hope for the future. Confidence that perfect justice will someday be done. We know because Jesus rose from the dead, there's life after death. You have a high and a holy calling while you're here. Folks need purpose. Folks without purpose don't do very well. You've heard of people retiring and then they die because they don't have anything to do. They don't have anything to live for. They don't have any reason to get up. That can never be the case with a believer. We have a high and holy calling to reconcile people to Christ. And another thing is we know that suffering in this life is temporary and will be overshadowed and forgotten in eternity. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul wrote that. Paul had his share of suffering, right? He was stoned to death, they thought. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by this uh, venomous snake that should have killed him, except God prevented that. I mean, he was in chains. He was beaten over and over. This is not a guy saying, hey, you know, I've had a pretty good life. I think it's going to be even better later. He knew what he was talking about when he said the sufferings of this life are not even worth comparing to the glory that's to come. I hope that gives you hope. I hope it gives you anticipation to look forward to that return of our glorious Lord and Savior.